0: So today's reading is from Philippians 3, uh, verse 12, and it's found on page 1180 of the Church Bibles, 1180, and starting at verse 12. Not that I have already obtained all this, or have already been made perfect, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Brothers, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it. But one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining towards what is ahead, I press on towards the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenwards in Jesus Christ. All of us who are mature should take the touch of view of things. And if on some point you think differently, that too God will make clear to you. Only let us live up to what we have already attained. Join with others in following my example, brothers, and take note of those who live according to the pattern we gave you. For, as I have often told you before, and now say again, even with tears, many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their destiny is destruction, their God is their stomach, and their glory is in their shame. Their mind is on earthly things, but our citizenship is in heaven. And we eagerly await a saviour from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who, by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control, will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be, made, will be like his glorious body. Therefore, my brothers, you whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, that is how you should stand firm in the Lord, dear friends. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Let's just open in a brief word of prayer before we begin. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you that we can meet together today, tonight, to consider your word. We pray, Lord, that you will speak to us, that you will send your Holy Spirit to open our minds, to open our hearts to the truth of your word. We pray, Lord, especially that you will help us to see what the Christian's life truly is about, and then to follow your Son, our Lord and Saviour. We ask all this in Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen. Amen. Some of you may have been brave enough to run a marathon or two in your time. Some of you, but not all of us. Um, I doubt, however, whether any of you have ever run an ultramarathon, especially not one like the Westfield-Sydney-to-Melbourne Marathon. 544 miles, run over five days. The first time it took place was in 1983. 150 professional ultra-long-distance runners arrived for the event, dressed in their fancy shoes and in their fancy clothing, ready to go. Cliff Young also turned up. Cliff was a 61-year-old shepherd and potato farmer. Cliff was wearing his work boots, protected by a pair of galoshes and his work overalls. People thought he was there just to watch the race. Until Cliff ambled up to the sign-in desk and asked for a number. Some words were exchanged, there was discussion. Words to the effect of, you're trying to be funny, mate, were expressed. Cliff said, I'm serious. And eventually he prevailed and they gave him his race number. Cliff didn't have to change. He was already ready for the, dressed for the event. But he did have to remove his dentures to stop them from rattling as he ran. <laughs> he was given his race number, number 64. The race started. Everyone took off and disappeared down the track into the distance. Cliff shuffled along at the back in his galoshes and in his overalls, far behind all the other competitors. The TV commentator said, somebody needs to stop that old bloke before he kills himself. Five days, 15 hours, and four minutes later, Cliff crossed the finishing line in first place. The person who came in second arrived nine hours later. You see, nobody told Cliff that when you run an ultramarathon, you're supposed to run for 18 hours, then fall down for six, then run for 18, then fall down for six. Cliff was a shepherd. He was used to chasing down sheep across the plains of Australia, so he just kept on shuffling along day day and night until he crossed the finishing line in first place. And the Cliff Young Shuffle became a famous running technique in Australia. Now I tell you that story not just because it's really cool and really true, and it is, but also because Jesus Christ and Paul the Apostle want you to understand what it means and what it does not mean to live a Christian life. The picture of an ultramarathon runner helps you to understand what it means and what it does not mean to live the life of a Christian. So let me explain. If you've been coming to this church for any length of time, then you'll know that we endlessly, endlessly repeat the message of Jesus, the message that you will not get to heaven by running hard at being good. You won't get eternal peace. You won't get forgiveness. You will not get reconciliation with God by running hard at being good. You will not get to heaven that way. Because salvation wonderfully is a gift. It's a gift from a gracious and a merciful God. And there are some passages in the Bible, like Romans 9, 16, which puts it very well, which many translations render like this. So then... It does not depend on the person who wills or runs, but on God who has mercy. It depends on God who has mercy. Salvation comes by God's mercy, not by your desire or by your running hard. It's God's gift from start to finish. But once you have that gift, once you're a sinner saved by grace, once Christ is your Lord and Savior, what then? What does my life look like then as a believer, as a disciple of Jesus Christ? Well, firstly, your entire status changes. You could argue your identity changes. And you become a literal citizen of the kingdom of heaven. You have a passport within you. It's called the Holy Spirit. You become a citizen of heaven. That's what Paul says in verse 20 in the passage in front of us. Your citizenship is of heaven, is in heaven. So that's the first thing that happens. The second thing that happens is that you are united with Christ. You become part of the body of, of Christ's body as the, local, as the global church, as represented in the local church. And as it says in Romans chapter 12, that means you are loved and you are cared for and you are gifted and, and able to serve in that local church. So it means you're a citizen of heaven and it means you're a member of Christ's global body. And that's wonderful. That's incredible to have those two benefits. But that's not all it is. Because the Christian life also means that you are in a fight. You're in a war. In Ephesians 6, in the second half of Ephesians 6, Paul talks about the fact that you need to put on the full armor of God the righteousness he gives, the truth he gives, the peace he gives, so that you can resist the sinful nature that is still within you, so that you can resist the world around you, and so that you can resist Satan himself. You are in a fight, and you're also in a race. You're also in a race, which is what today's passage is all about. So that's what Jesus and Paul want you to understand, Christian. You are wonderfully blessed to be a citizen of God's kingdom, you are wonderfully blessed to be part of a body of believers who will love and serve you, but you are also in a fight and you are also in a race. So Paul says, please don't stop, not even for a break. I encourage you, I urge you, I beg you, press on, press on. The first thing he says is, press on and look at the prize. So let's think about that. Let's think about what he means by press on, look at the prize. Now Paul is thinking about the fact that one day he will be completely free of sin. He will be perfect in every way. He will be resurrected with a new body, with no pain and no suffering, and he will know the Lord Jesus Christ in a way that he cannot even possibly imagine now. That's what he's thinking about, those things, And so he says in the passage that was read to us earlier, just go back a verse or two, verse 10. I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings and in becoming like him in his death and so somehow to attain to the resurrection from the dead. He wants all of that now, but he knows he hasn't got it yet. Not that I have already obtained this, Not that I've already been made perfect, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Brothers, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do I forget what is behind, I strive for what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. Press on, he says in verse 12. Press on, he says in verse 14. If you were to go digging in the New Testament, you'd find that this picture, this metaphor of a Christian being an athlete in a race, is fairly common. So you see Paul using it in 1 Corinthians chapter 9. You see it in 2 Timothy chapter 2. These letters he's written, it comes up again and again. 2 Timothy chapter 4, and also in Hebrews 12, which we'll come to later. You see it all over. But it is a picture, right? It's a metaphor. So it's really important that we understand what the elements of that picture actually mean and do not mean, so that we don't misunderstand it. So there are two questions we need to ask of this picture of running in a race. First, what is the prize? What is he actually talking about? He talks, if you look at the second half of verse 12, About pressing on to take hold of that, of that prize for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. So Christ took hold of me so that I could press on to take hold of that prize. What is that prize? Verse fourteen, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. So what is this prize really? Now prizes are good things, right? At least that's what I'm told. I don't know about you, but I must admit, I was pretty rubbish at sport at school. I have to confess, open admission, I sucked. (laughs) I participated with enthusiasm and zeal and dedication, but there is a good reason why I do not have a special place in my home for trophies that I won. (laughs) Because in my day, you got nothing for not winning. So I was very relieved to discover that the good news about living as a Christian is that it's not about winning. It's not about winning, and the prize isn't a trophy in heaven as such. It's unfortunate that the NIV, the version of the Bible we use, uses the word win in verse 14. I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. It's unfortunate because that's not in the original language, in the Greek. The word for prize has a big stress around it, right? So it's kind of, you're running to get the prize, you're running for the prize, which is how most other translations do it. But the word win really can give the wrong impression, because it gives the impression that the prize that Paul is talking about is something he wins or something he earns, and it is not. It is not something he earns. The prize is something he already has in part. It's something he can already taste. It's something he wants in its entirety, he wants it in full, but he doesn't have all of it yet. Look at verse 10. It's where he describes the prize. He wants to know Christ, whom he knows already, but not fully. He wants to know the power of his resurrection in raising him to new life, which he knows already in part, but not fully. He wants to know the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, by which he means becoming dead to my sin through the transforming power of Jesus Christ, which he knows already, but not entirely, not fully. He wants to attain to the the ultimate and complete resurrection from the dead. And so he says in verse 12, I haven't obtained all of this. I haven't already been made perfect, but I press on, to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Now, probably the best summary, or certainly one of the best summaries, of everything he's after, of what he's chasing down, of what he's racing for, of what he wants to know, is a passage in the Bible that many of you will know very well. Or at least you'll know the one verse. We often don't go on to the next one. And the passage which I'll just read to you is Romans 8, verse 28. We know that in all things... God works for the good of those who love him in all things, who have been called according to his purpose. But why? Why does he work for the good of you? It's in the next verse. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the likeness of his Son. The end game is to be conformed to the likeness of Jesus Christ you, Christian, have also been predestined for. You've also been taken hold of, like in verse 12. You've also been called heavenward, like in verse 14, for one thing and one thing only, to be conformed to the likeness of the Son of God, to be made into the likeness of Jesus Christ, to be made like Jesus. That is why you are called. That is the prize. That is the prize. That's why he wants to run. He's not running for a great life now, not for peace and prosperity now, although God graciously might give that. He's not even running for a great life in heaven. He's not running for the absence of pain and the presence of joy in heaven, although that will be given. He's running to be made like Jesus, to be transformed into a complete worshipping God, glorifying person like our Lord Jesus Christ. That's what he's running for. That's the prize, becoming more like Christ. And it's something that should be getting more and more real as he gets closer and closer to the finish line. And so he says, press on, press on, press on, because that's the prize. But what does he mean by press on? What specifically does Paul mean when he says in verse 13... Brothers, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead, I press on. I'm sure some of you have enjoyed a bit of free-falling, indoor skydiving at iFly at the leisure park, right? Some of you. Floating in mid-air is great fun. It's huge fun once you, get, once you get hold of it, once you get the hang of it, once you learn to trust the technique. And most people seem to really, really enjoy it, right? Although with some it does take a while for the screaming to stop. There used to be a Christian movement which lived by a strapline that iFly could readily adopt. And it was this, let go and let God. Let go and let God. They basically believe that becoming a Christian meant, and I quote, by a step of faith, we put ourselves into the hands of the Lord for him to work in us. And by a continuous exercise of faith, we keep ourselves there. Our part is trusting. It is his part to accomplish the results. That's what they believe. It sounds fine doesn't it sounds really spiritual my part is trusting no effort on my part just to let go and let god his part is to accomplish the results it sounds great and it's also a load of horse manure if you'll excuse the description it is a lie that is not what growth as a Christian, becoming more like Jesus, sanctification, to use the technical term, is about. It's not about let go and let God. The Bible tells us to fight. Yes, enabled by God the Holy Spirit, but to fight and to run. Yes, enabled by God the Holy Spirit, but to run. Kevin DeYoung, who's an author, in his excellent little book called The Hole in Our Holiness, Puts it like this gives an excellent description of what is meant by pressing on. And he says, Effort is not a four letter word. The New Testament consistently says that growth in godliness, in becoming more like Christ, requires exertion, hard work by the Christian. Christians work, they work to kill sin, and they work to live by the Spirit. They fight and they run. And then he quotes a whole raft of verses to back up his his case, his statement. Romans 8.13 says, put sin to death by the Spirit. Ephesians 4.22 says, put off the corrupted old self, put on the new. Colossians 1.29 says, work with all of Christ's power. Colossians 3.5 says, put to death whatever is part of your sinful nature, 1 Timothy 6.12 says, fight the good fight. 1 Corinthians 9.24 says, run the race. 2 Peter 1.5 says, make every effort. You get the point. Revelation 2 and 3 says, the reward of eternal life goes to those who conquer and overcome. And as we've seen, Philippians 3.13 says, press on. Forget what's behind, strain for what's ahead. So if you want an analogy of the Christian life then it is not free-fall skydiving. It's running an ultramarathon, without stopping, enabled by God the Holy Spirit to get through to the finishing line, even if you do sometimes feel like you're running in galoshes and work overalls. So that's the first thing Paul tells us. Press on, Christian, look to the prize. And then to encourage us even more, he says, press on, Christian, look at examples. Look at examples. So verse 15 All of us who mature should take such a view of things. And if on some point you think differently, that too God will make clear to you. Only let us live up to what we have already attained. Join with others in following my example, brothers, and take note of those who live according to the pattern we gave you. For as I have often told you before, and now, say again, with even with tears, many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their destiny is destruction. their God is their stomach, and their glory is their shame. Their mind is on earthly things. So Paul starts by saying, "Look at these examples. Look at the good examples. Look at the ones to follow in your race, verses 15 to 17. Now there's too much in these verses to unpack in the time that we have. But notice how he says in verse 17, join with others in following my example, brothers, and take note of those who live according to the pattern we gave you, the pattern of my example. And he's saying, look at my life. Look at me as an example. That's what Paul is saying. Look at the lives of those around you who are doing the same, following our pattern, our way of life. Now that might sound a little bit arrogant, right? You know, look at me, I'm wonderful do as I do and do as I say. Is that really what's going on? Is that arrogance? Well, he is saying, look at my life. But he's clearly saying, knowing it full well, knowing full well that he's an example of what Christ can do, not of what he, Paul, can do. Remember, this is the guy who regarded himself as the greatest of all sinners, and he meant that in all sincerity. This is the guy who knew he was the arch persecutor of Christians wherever he could get his hands on them, who wanted them all dead or changed and and buried until, as he said earlier, the Lord took hold of me. Until God took hold of me. So Paul's not pointing to what he's done in his life as a great example and as a wonderful guy. He's pointing to what Christ has done in his life as a great example to be followed. He's pointing to himself as the worst of the worst in humility and not in pride, right? As an example of what can be done, enabled by God the Holy Spirit, and he's saying, do what I do, be an imitator of me, even as I also am of Jesus Christ. Don Carson is a theologian, and he's Canadian, he's in America. And he tells this great story <coughs> about a friend of his at college by the name of Dave Ward, Now, Dave was a really, really strong Christian that Don had a a lot of respect for, had a lot of time for. And Don one day had these two other friends who were just pestering him with questions that were just too difficult to cope with. So he said, "Let's let's go to Dave, Dave will give us coffee, and he will answer your questions. We will go to Dave. So they went to Dave. Now, Dave was really busy, exam time, frenetic, so he was a bit more abrupt than usual, but he gave them coffee, he sat down, He turns to Don's first friend and he says, so why did you come? Kind of like, what do you want? And Don's friend said, well, you know, I I think we should have a more open-minded university. I'd like to learn more about Buddhism and Islam and all of these religions, and of course a bit more about Christianity. So So I suppose I have some questions I'd like to ask you. Dave stared at him and he said, I don't have time. I don't mean to be rude or anything, but I'm under huge pressure, I'm really busy. If you want more information, I'll give you some books. But if you've got some vague intellectual interest out there somewhere in Christianity and you're not interested in pursuing this matter passionately, I don't have time. Not recommending this as a technique, by the way. It's just telling you what happened. He turned to the second guy. and He said, Why did you come? And the second guy went, Um. <laughs> he said, Well, look, you've got to understand. I come from a good home, my mom and dad love me. We're a good family, we're ethical, we do things for charity. You know, frankly, I don't see that you have anything that I don't already have." Dave looked at him for a while, and then he said, watch me. And the guy said, pardon? beg your pardon? And he said, watch me. I've got a spare bed. You move in with me for a month. I will cover all your expenses. You get up when I get up. You go to bed when I get up, when I go to bed. You follow me around. At the end of that month, After you've watched me for 30 days, you tell me if I have anything that you don't have. Now what Paul says in Philippians, as himself, as an example, and what we have as an example in Dave Ward, puts two obligations on you as a Christian. Two obligations. The first is to look at the pattern of life of those whom God has changed in the body of believers around you is to look at them as an example, people in the church family who are shining examples of God's grace. Now, I don't want this to be abstract, so I'm going to make it a bit more real, and I'm going to tell you about someone in this church. She won't mind because she's dead. Think about Jean Woods. If ever there was a trophy of grace, that was one. Now, you all know how kind she was, How funny she was, how rude she could be, how passionate she was about the things that mattered, how she served, how she exemplified looking forward and not looking back. Except when it came to English rugby, there she did look back, sometimes in dismay, actually quite often in dismay, and with great regret. But other than that, she just looked forward. She just looked forward. And we were all humbled, but not at all surprised, to discover at her funeral for the first time, that gene words for years would get up at 5 a.m. and pray for all of you by name for two hours. That's the first obligation. Find those examples. Talk, <coughs> talk to them about their lives. Pick their brains. Buy them lunch. Invest time with them. Make an utter nuisance of yourself. Learn what they do and do what they do. You know, after all, why make your own stupid mistakes in life when you can learn from someone else's, right? But there's another obligation, and it's not just to follow examples, but to strive to be examples. It's to strive as older men to lead and to teach younger men. It's to strive as older women, as it tells us in Scripture, to lead and to teach younger women. It's to strive as mature Christian teenagers... To be an example to young Christian teenagers, it's to be prepared to put your cultural, your personal, and ironically your prideful barriers aside and say, with the Apostle Paul and with Dave Ward, come and watch me, come and see what God can do. I understand, well, that would be terrifying, probably for both parties concerned but surely it's something we have to strive for. That's what Paul says. And then as a way of warning, Paul points to other examples, and he says in verses 18 and 19, he warns us that there will be people in the church who cannot be trusted, and they always have been. There will be people in the church who are enemies of the cross of Christ, who are consumed with bending the truth to serve their own appetites and their own glory, and are only worried about the now but that's just by way of warning. So Paul said, press on, Christian, look at the prize. And he said, press on and look at the examples. And he says just one more thing for us. He says, press on and look to his strength. Look to his strength. So look at verse 20. Our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who by the power that enables him To bring everything under his control will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, you whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, that is how you should stand firm in the Lord, dear friends. So here's the bad news. All this pressing on is actually utterly impossible. You can't do it. You don't have the wisdom. You don't have the ability. You don't have the strength. You don't have what it will take to reach the end of the race. But here's the good news you can't do it. You don't have the wisdom. You don't have the ability. You don't have the strength. You don't have what it will take to reach the end of the race. But He does. Right, so like Paul says, by His power, our Savior has brought everything under His control everything and by that same power he will transform your body to make it like his glorious renewed body he will make you like himself he has the wisdom he has the ability he has the strength and that is how you can successfully complete the race and receive the prize now i don't have the words to describe this adequately at all but fortunately the Bible does. Please turn to page one two one zero. Hebrews chapter twelve. One two one zero. So the author of this letter, we don't know who it was, but the author of this letter has just been talking about the fact that not only do we have these living examples and witnesses to the race that we must run but we also have a massive list of examples who've just finished their race with honors, right? Despite all their failings, and he points in chapter 11 to what we often call the great hall of faith, to people like Noah, and Abraham, and Moses, and Rahab, the prostitute, and David. And then he says this in chapter 12, verse 1, therefore, Consider him who endured such opposition from sinful men so that you will not grow weary and lose heart in this race. So God, by his word, calls on us to follow godly examples, dead and alive. He urges us to get rid of anything that gets in the way. He cheers us on and empowers us to persevere and not to give up in the race that he has, quote, marked out specifically for you individually. And he urges us, look at Christ. Look at the one who is the source of our faith, who has everything under his control, who is sovereign, and he's seated on the throne, and who endured far greater opposition than we ever will. And he says, press on. Press on as you look at the prize of christ likeness, Press on as you look at the godly examples around you and before you and press on even though you don't have what it takes. Let's close in prayer. Lord, thank you. Thank you that you look on us in grace, with understanding, sometimes even with delight as we shuffle and stumble our way through our lives. Thank you that you enable us to press on in your strength. We pray, Lord, that you will give us your strength, that you will give us your wisdom, that you will help us to always consider you, to look to you, to consider what you endured, so that we may not become weary and lose heart, but that we may press on come what may. We ask all this in your name for your glory and for your honor. Amen.